these rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to The Vegan Vanguard, a show that confronts a wide range of topics from a leftist, anti-capitalist, feminist, anti-racist, anti-all-the-is, anti-all-the-isms, pro-animal liberation, pro-human liberation, radical vegan perspective. Damn! Damn, girl! I'm Mexi, and usually I co-host this podcast with the love of my life, Maureen, from A Privileged Vegan. However, she is in Spain at the moment attending a conference, so this week and actually also in two weeks, you will have interviews from me. We thought we would take this opportunity for me to do some interviews because Maureen's already done a couple, and the timing of everything right now is just a bit strange. As I said, right now, Maureen's in Spain, and then at the end of this week, I'm actually traveling to Europe for several weeks. I'm going to be attending a conference of my own. And then the last week of this month, I am actually going to be visiting Marine in France. Wow, we're going to meet for the first time in our lives. Can you believe that we have not actually met in real life? That's kind of unbelievable to me. But anyway, we're really excited. We are going to record two podcasts together, probably. We're just going to make a whole ton of content. We're going to record some videos together. So... Yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's why we're going to have uh, interviews for the next couple of episodes. But yeah, stay tuned. So, today I'm going to be talking with Josh Walker, who went over to fight with the YPG in Rojava and who is just a wealth of knowledge of all things relating to the Kurdish revolution. And in two weeks, I have a really exciting episode coming up with Becky Ellis, who is a bee expert. And we're going to be talking about insectageddon and the bee decline and the implications of that and capitalism and productive ways forward that could lead us to a multi-species commons, which I found really, really cool. So stay tuned for that. And then I'm also going to be interviewing Rania Kalek about Syria. Some of you may be aware of her work. She was recently on Rev Left Radio as well, so you can check her out there. So yeah, we're going to space it out a little bit so that we don't just have a month and a half straight on Syria, um, but it is a really big topic. It is a really divisive topic, which we saw with the last interview with Yazan. Um, which we saw coming, frankly. Um, when I first heard the interview, I told Maureen, you know, I think there's a lot here that can challenge us on the left and, and make us pause and reflect on our own positions. However, people are going to be pissed. People are going to be real, real pissed. People are going to get real emotional about this. And they did. They really did, and uh, and we were not surprised. <laughs> we were not surprised at all. But I think it was still quite interesting, and I was really interested to hear the perspective or the criticisms of the anti-imperialist left. And of course, when I was listening to it, I did not agree with everything that was being said, and I certainly felt uncomfortable 
for a lot of the time because I do identify as part of the anti-imperialist left and I have been very vocal about that with respect to Syria. But I, I also have some really great, brilliant, you know, radical leftist comrades in Toronto that I really respect. And I had seen them sharing kind of similar things prior to when Maureen had done this interview. And they kind of shook me a little bit because, you know, I here I am being super vocal about something. And yeah, it really did actually give me a bit of pause. So, you know, one of my friends shared, I think it was an article that was called anti-imperialism for idiots or something like that. Um, excuse the ableism with that term. But it was along that line. So it was from a Syrian perspective. And of course, there are innumerable Syrian perspectives and we cannot essentialize or presume that we know what what any Syrian may be thinking. But this person was saying, you know, I am against Western imperialism, but I'm also, you know, I'm not going to spend all this energy being mad that a bomb dropped on an empty military base of a ruler who is torturing my family, right? You know, so th those are just not my priorities. And yeah, I mean, it gave me a bit of pause. And I, I thought that, I thought that what Yazan was saying about the general discourse on the left, a lot of people acting or conducting themselves as if they do own Syria. I, I thought that that was kind of true. And I kind of felt that, you know, we do spend a lot of time focusing on the bombs, which I, I mean, I don't think that we should not focus on them. But I also don't see that same kind of fervent energy for people, you know, trying to force their governments to open the borders. I just don't frankly see that. I mean, we know that only 11 Syrian refugees have been led into the United States. And certainly people are working on that. But I feel like in leftist circles, we, we kind of do spend a lot of energy sharing things online about how bad imperialism is. But I, I guess I, I don't see that much energy being devoted to to really helping the Syrian refugees. So Anyway, no matter what you agreed or disagreed with, hopefully there was still something that you could take away from it or even just to use what was being said to, to reflect on your own positions and assumptions and think about how perhaps you are conducting yourself and the discourse that you're putting out and are you ignoring different perspectives that that should be heard. And so anyway, that's all I'll say about that. But I did want to say that, you know, we completely welcome criticism. And if we have a guest on that you don't agree with, we definitely welcome comments. We welcome people talking about what they thought was missing, what they thought was perhaps contradictory or, or whatever with what was being said. That is all totally welcome. But there were a few comments that really got cruel and personal and just laid out these personal attacks on Maureen in a really just rage-filled way that was completely unnecessary. It made me really mad to read. And it was really stressful for Maureen in an already very stressful time for her. And it was just very upsetting. And yeah, I just, I really won't stand for that. I mean, I know, I know that we can't really control how people engage in our space. Actually, we can control how people engage in our space because we can just delete the comments. So I don't know. From now on, I'm going to be laying down 
well, I'm not, I'm not, but if people are taking cruel personal attacks that aren't just talking about the ideas, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's just not okay. So anyway, I will leave you with that. And also one thing that is going to come out of this, which I think is really productive is that now we have the opportunity to take these criticisms levied at the anti-imperialist left and think about them and talk about them with other people and, and expand the conversation. And so today we're going to be addressing some of those points with Josh about Rojava and with Rania as well. We'll be, we'll be trying to take a look at some of these criticisms and to what extent they are valid, to what extent, you know, we can, we can discuss them and, and build a stronger way forward. <laughs> Sorry, that was cheesy. Um, anyway, on with the interview. Before we start, I just wanted to remind everyone that if you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to be a monthly patron on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you can throw us a one-time donation via PayPal, which you can also find on our website in the support section or at the bottom of every post. So I think I've covered everything I wanted to cover, perhaps not the most articulately, but without further ado, let us get into the interview. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. All right. So, uh, before we get started, I think it would be good if you could just introduce yourself and give us a bit of a brief history and perhaps what your leftist tendency is, if you follow any. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm Josh Walker. I, um, I'm from uh, Southwest Wales in the UK. I was a member of the YPG for some time in 2016. Uh, these days I work in a factory. Um, and I, in terms of my leftist tendency, I'd, it, it's hard to say. I, you know, I, um, I'm more of a floating, um, floating leftist. I agree with some kind of more anarchist principles, a lot of the kind of traditional, uh, labor movement stuff in the UK you know we have a long history of uh, workers and peasants resistance and all that kind of thing especially in Wales um, mm -hmm. and you know some things I'm a little more authoritarian some things I'm a little more libertarian so I, I often make the joke of being a Marxist uh, of the Groucho variety uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, that sounds sounds good. I mean, I'm I'm kind of all about the non-sectarian leftist uh, shtick. So floating floating leftists, I think that's a new term. Yeah, but, uh, I, I just sorry, just to sum it up quickly, I think if if you if you're for workers having more rights, more control, and a better life, I'm with you. If you're against that, I'm, I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, not to not to be too much of a George Bush about it. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, fantastic. I think that's something that everyone can get behind, hopefully, if you're listening to this show. Um, okay, so let's dive into questions about Rojava. So I think that most of our listeners are leftists, perhaps, or at least have some working knowledge of Rojava and the Kurdish resistance, but that might not be the case. So I think it would be good to start by providing some context for what we'll be talking about. 
So assuming a completely lay audience, could you give some background information about the Kurdish freedom movement and the importance of defending Rojava? And could you also perhaps lay out who the major players are and how they relate to one another? Because there are a lot of acronyms floating around that might be confusing for people who aren't fully versed in this stuff. Like there's the SCF, DFNS, uh, PKK, PYD, YPG, YPJ. It, uh, it all gets a bit confusing at times. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really does. <laughs> um so, I mean, firstly, no one should feel too bad about that because I had a Turkish-Kurdish lecturer who did um, a thing on the YPG specifically and, and she confused a lot of the acronyms. Uh, so oh. it's, it's perfectly natural. Um, essentially, I guess a brief history of it would be back in the 70s, there was a, well, Kurdish resistance goes back in the, in the area like a couple of centuries and everything. But um, really the modern kind of Kurdish freedom movement, as you say, um, has its origins in the 70s with the military dictatorship in Turkey. Um, they murdered a lot of student leftists and stuff like that. They massacred people at a, a music festival, um, all this kind of stuff. And in that context, a group of students, including Abdullah Ocalan and uh, many others, uh, Kurdish and Turks alike, established the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, of course, PKK being the Kurdish acronym. And uh, yeah, and they essentially started an armed struggle because among the other things the, the dictatorship was doing, they were repressing Kurdish identity in the... Um, interests of creating a a kind of monocultural Turkish state. I mean, this goes back to the founding under Ataturk, but um, you know, it was particularly it's particularly strong in those days. So, so yeah, Kurdish people could speak their language. You know, it was banned. They can ed educate their children in it, and other you know identifiers of well, Kurdish identity were being suppressed. Um, and basically over the last 40 years, they've fought this armed rebellion. So, so there's all that going on in Turkey. Um, so the PKK is the Workers' Party, the Kurdish Workers' Party. Yeah, Partiya Karkar in Kurdistan. Yeah. Um, and so so they're, they're kind of the progenitors of a lot of the left Kurdish freedom movements, you know, in Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria, and of course, Turkey. So then when, well, firstly, when there was a riot and a kind of massacre of Kurds at a football stadium in Kamishlo, I think it was back in 2006, something like that, followers of the PKK's, or the founder of the PKK's ideology, set up their own party in Syria called the PYD, the uh, Democratic Union Party. Um, of, of Kurdistan um, and the the YPG is essentially the armed wing of that now they were quite quiet until of course the whole Arab Spring thing broke out um, there was the revolution in Syria and um, essentially the PYD used this opportunity to rise up take control of the Kurdish areas and faced by you know so many enemies on so many fronts the government essentially retreated to the core and 
pulled their soldiers out of most of the Kurdish areas and ba basically with a little bit of fighting, but not much, conceded most of, you know, the Kurdish areas of the north, um, you know, except for a few areas around like the security, kind of the, the hub of the security state in cities like Kamishlo and Haska and so on and so forth. So, so that, that's, yeah, that's essentially where the PKK, the YPG kind of came from. Um, you also have in northern Iraq, you know, you have the KRG, which is the Kurdistan regional government that has two major parties in it, essentially kind of in the context, the center right party, the um, KDP, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the center left party, the PUK, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. They're more capitalist especially the the kdp the kdp is you know the current ruling party there they're quite you know a corrupt sort of family like run by the barzani family kind of organization they're often hostile to the pkk the ypg and all these because obviously they're a threat to their power as well and they work mm -hmm. with turkey on this basis and all this kind of stuff and the YPJ is the women's armed version of the YPG, correct? Yeah, essentially. So from from the um from the initialisms, acronyms or whatever that you mentioned earlier, the DFNS is the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. That's the official name of what is often called Rojava, because Rojava means just west in Kurdish and they thought that was too exclusionary um that it, it referring to the area as Rojava especially especially as it expanded into Arab areas was kind of enforcing a Kurdish identity on it and as you know the the ideology of of the Kurdish uh, freedom movement had kind of evolved from kind of Marxist-Leninist national liberation struggle kind of thing to more of a um, multi-ethnic kind of ideology. Although there were there were always elements of that, of course. I mean, Marxism is generally you know internationalist and all that kind of thing, but they they kind of wanted something that that expressed that better. Um, and that that was you know more the the kind of said that it wasn't just about establishing a West Kurdistan, but more of a you know a, a free area that happened to include a lot of Kurds, but also um, also Arabs, um, Turkmen's, uh, Assyrians, and so on and so forth. Um, the SDF is the Syrian Democratic Forces. They're the they're essentially the military of the DFNS um, and the YPG are probably the largest militia within that broader alliance, um, which is made up of uh, not just the YPG um, and the YPJ, but also a lot of rebel, generally Arab militias and so on, and new militias that have been formed as they liberate areas from ISIS and so on hmm. and so forth. Okay, so that's so interesting. So should we should we refer to it as a democratic federation of northern Syria and not Rojava? Really, yes. yes. It's difficult because it's become such a, you know, it's kind of become an established thing that it's Rojava. And, mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of the other foreign volunteers like myself uh, will 
generally refer to it that way and so on and so forth but really it is the dfns or the federation or whatever i mm. i sometimes like to call it the federation just because i'm a massive star trek nerd so uh, <laughs> <laughs> it feels better you know fighting for the federation <laughs> yeah yeah um that's so interesting yeah i've really only uh heard it referred to as rojava just generally popularly on the left but you're right that that does kind of uh put in your mind that it is really a kurdish thing um yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so I guess that kind of gets into the next question about democratic confederalism or communalism, uh, the ideology that really drives the PYD in like the DFNS, I suppose. Could you explain a bit about what their ideology actually is and how they came to accept it as a foundational political principle? Um, it's essentially, so democratic confederalism is essentially a, a system of direct democracy that's based on building building things up from a you know a ground level like a neighborhood kind of council level to you know larger communities cities and then cantons and so on and so forth with representation for all genders all races all religions and stuff kind of built in as part of it you know they're not afraid to use quotas and that's quite an important part of it because you know because there is always the risk that people get isolated it's all well and good to have a ideology that kind of expresses you know say women's liberation or tolerance of minorities but in reality as we've seen many times people who can express those things maybe don't um, believe them genu genuinely and the best way to ensure rights for minorities for women and so on and so forth is to have them actually making the decisions that affect them mm. you know um, because yeah like I said we, we've all seen recently what powerful men sadly often do mm. um, yes. so yeah <laughs> not getting to that one um, so that, that's kind of the basis of it and obviously it prefers uh, cooperative ownership um, so on and so forth for for various strategic and tactical reasons the uh, the FNS as it were doesn't push so hard on the kind of socialist economics of it even though mm -hmm. socialism and ecology and all that kind of stuff is a very important part of it mm -hmm. um, in the actual expression of it, in the actual practice, there's there's less of that because of the need to, essentially the need to, to in the way I see it, is the need to avoid the powerful interest in society destabilizing things when, well, essentially to, to express it, they, they, you know, they have collectivize some farms or whatever or, or or change things around when there's the opportunity but they prefer to do things by consensus and and convincing people and stuff rather than just forcing things on them partially because powerful patriarchs of of uh, clans in in the region and so forth have a lot of men at their disposal a lot of men that that fought for isis previously that fought for the fsa that that you know it's it's a very strong thing that, that in the in the region a lot of these people will side with who they think is in their best interest at the time um and so in order to not risk open rebellion in the areas they've 
they've liberated they take more of a soft approach um, mm -hmm. on that kind of thing mm -hmm. um, could you explain a bit how their governance model works um like how do they organize their direct democracy etc so in in areas um in areas under their control liberate, liberated by the ypg however you want to express it they generally set up a Oh, I forget the word for it, but but like a, a, a community house, a community council space. Um, and they, they usually have party members, party functionaries who will go out in the area, go and ask people, you know, what they need, what their problems, uh, what problems they're facing and invite them into the, the councils, essentially. And the councils run on, you know, a direct democratic kind of way where people you know suggest things and everyone votes on it and all that kind of thing and you know, the classic kind of soviet stuff in the original sense of you know having those like workers councils having unions uh councils for women and women's issues you know a lot of the women there will be married mothers and and face certain things in society and so on and so forth so they um you know, set up councils for that. Yeah, so you kind of touched on it a bit there, but I wanted to ask how are feminist ideals incorporated into their praxis? Because I know there's a strong focus on feminism when anyone talks about Rojava or the Kurds. Yeah, so there's obviously the Yekanean Palestina Jin, which is the YPJ, the Women's Protection Unit. Um, so that's a big part of it. They um, they set up a lot of women's houses, which are, um, it's hard to describe. I've been to a couple for a short amount of time, but they're essentially some sort of mix between a family planning advice center, a, a domestic violence shelter, and a barracks um, in some cases, you know, because it's a very violently patriarchal society in many ways. Um, so you, you kind of have this sort of thing where uh, a woman will escape a forced marriage or a, a violent home and come to the women's house and, you know, the father, the brothers, the husband and his father and brothers and everything will come along to try and get them back. And when a woman with a machine gun pops up on the roof, they generally reconsider. Um, so, you know, they're in, in, that, in that sense, they're, they're taking a very direct uh, woman-controlled uh, approach to, to facing these things head-on. Um, it's one thing that they don't compromise with. Uh, the, on economics, that's one thing, but, but they do not compromise on the women's rights. Mm -hmm. um, and that some that sometimes brings them into opposition with the more, you know, conservative and patriarchal elements of society. But the kind of benefits are there that generally all you get out of it is just, you know, the old husbands complaining that they can't tell their wives or daughters anything anymore. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So so there's that. And sorry, just one more thing. In in the actual councils, there's a forty percent gender quota. So essentially, if there's, you know, 60% women on a council, um, on the larger councils, there aren't allowed to be any more. There's 40% men. Mm -hmm. 
men as the rest of the council. And likewise, if they're 60% men, then there has to be 40% women. And this, this they, they will do things like, you know, they will delay the council meeting until all these men who've come and said, oh, well, my wife couldn't come because um, she's busy. They tell the men to go home, do whatever work that the woman was supposed to be doing and send the woman to the council. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, they won't help them sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a very important part of the practice and is the thing that they're most successful at, I would mm-hmm. say. That's really great. I remember hearing that, I think, last year, and I was just like, wow, I, I was just really impressed. Um because I mean, we don't even do that in the West, you know. No, <laughs> no. They're far more radical than us, and I think they've on 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 uh, feminism, and I think they've got the right of it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, there, mm-hmm. There's also things like one of my best command. In fact, most of my best commanders, well as out there, were women at very varying different levels. So this is another thing at all levels of the hierarchy, sort of thing. There are a man and a woman with a kind of equal position but the the woman can give orders to men so you know like, like my equivalent of a captain i suppose could order around the you know platoons of male soldiers in the ypg but a man cannot do the same to the woman they can suggest to the ypj that they should do something and you know often they're in the interest of fighting the same war or whatever um so they'll do it but um, they can't command them. They can't order them. If a if a if a male YPG member commits a offence against a YPJ, it's the YPJ and their command structure that deal with it, and there's nothing we can do about it. So, mm. say this is very unlikely to happen, but you know, men being men, um, say a a man was to sexually assault a member of the YPJ, then the YPJ could come along with their rifles and everything, drag him off and punish him in whatever the way they saw fit. And we wouldn't be allowed to raise a finger um, or, or protest. You know, it's, wow. it's to deal with and uh, uh, not for us. Wow, uh, that's uh, really incredible. I mean, not that I want to see people just <laughs> brutalizing men or anything like that, but just the no. idea that, you know, that, men cannot command the women um in the same way i think that's remarkable yeah i mean people often joke that um the the ypj because if if you assaulted the ypj they could just drag you off and shoot you and that's not quite true but they're a lot more likely to um say platform a man where essentially they have to stand in front of like all the ypj in the region while each one lays out exactly why what they did was wrong at great length and like kind of shame them in front of everyone that's quite a common punishment for Mm -hmm. sort of intermediate kind of crimes Mm -hmm. um, or offenses or whatever crimes isn't quite the right word for some things that you would get that kind of treatment for but wow um, yeah wow unbelievable um, so along this line, what would you say to the concern or the critique raised that feminism or the idea of feminism here might just be being used as a military strategy? Well, in some ways, I, uh, I've already implicitly answered this by pointing out how, um, in some ways, other elements are played down as part of a, a military political strategy. Um, 
it would be a lot i mean they're not fighting they're not fighting a civil war in i don't know brighton um oh, that mm-hmm. reference won't make sense to you it's it's probably the most liberal uh town in in britain um they're not fighting a civil war in say portland right they're they're fighting one in the middle east um when there has been a um an intensely a series of intensely patriarchal terrorist groups and so on in the region um and an intensely patriarchal society it would actually probably be more militarily con- and politically convenient for them to downplay the feminism and not push it so hard as soon as they move into a region and do all of that kind of stuff it, it, it would raise f- far fewer issues uh, <laughs> like the idea they're just using it as a military strategy that's what the military strategy that's what the military struggle rather is fundamentally that mm. that for for um the kind of followers of Abdullah Ojalan, the founder of the PKK, who's um, probably one of the main, well, he probably, he is the main ideological architect of this whole thing to, to them. And uh, there's other, you know, there's, there's other theorists within the Kurdish freedom movement and all that kind of thing. And he took influence from other places, but he's the most important one. And um, to kill the dominant male is the fundamental principle of socialism is one of his sayings. It's, it's uh, like the entire thing is about how the subjection of women in the first instance is where all other forms of slavery and subjection and everything come from. And the, the, the social idea of, of men as being dominant doesn't just stop in the home. It originates there, but it continues on to a, a strong man subjecting those who are weaker than him, um, a strong nation subjecting those that are weaker than them, and so on and so forth. And and when a when a boy in his home sees his mother being subjected in this way, uh, you know, then he will go out into society and believe that that's the way to behave in general. It'll, it's a fundamental, foundational principle of, of yeah, the whole thing. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's essentially like saying it's their military strategy to fight. <laughs> like <it's- laughs> Yeah, so you're saying, what you're saying is that the whole point of the military being involved at all is to fight for feminist and socialist values, not that those values are being used to kind of paint the resistance as something other than what it is yeah absolutely absolutely okay um so along the same lines of uh you know criticism of this movement the pyd has been accused of being a problematic party and that they repress opposition to the democratic confederalist experiment how would you respond to that well um one of the uh, the main opposition formations now so the the actual governing party so to speak of the um dfns is uh tevdem um which is kind of short for tevga democratic the uh movement for a democratic society which is actually a coalition of parties um in the kind of in the region, Co- coalition parties, organisations, you know, trade unions, um, civil society organisations that exist there, 
and you know a lot of the, the PYD is still the biggest one kind of similar to how the the YPG is in the SDF so so there is opposition within it and and in a kind of non-factional basis there is opposition to you know particular policies or whatever but one of the main opposition groupings outside of that is the i believe it's the ENKS um i can't remember what that stands for but it's essentially a grouping that's allied with the KDP in uh in northern iraq or southern uh, kurdistan mm. who have blockaded um who've blockaded rojava who've arrested our comrades thrown them in prison with isis members tortured them um committed a whole variety of horrendous crimes and they are like you're going to get a different response for me because i am at the end of the day a combat veteran and that does do some nasty things to your psyche at some degree but i'm not that bothered about traitors getting like actual genuine like agents and traitors being arrested and stuff like that like it, they can call themselves an opposition group all they want but that that's to make it sound more innocent than than it often is now a lot of the time when they are repressed when they are arrested and so on and so forth it's exactly in response to say ypg operatives or supporters being arrested in the kurdistan regional government and they're essentially used for prisoner exchanges and stuff like that like there there were lots of places where we knew there were people who were kdp supporters um and they they were you know they they that's what they believed in and that was fine they went around they did their normal business they didn't try to it's difficult because a lot of what i'm going to say can sound a little bit like euphemisms you know like like throughout history people have justified terrible things by saying um you know oh well they were undermining the revolution oh well they were you know traitors and spies and so on and so forth but those people do genuinely exist and in these in mm -hmm. these situations they can be very very dangerous um and and there are times when people can go beyond just being opposed to the idea to dangerously undermining it while you're in a state of war like that's what mm -hmm. people have to remember is this is a real revolution in the real world faced with real problems that have to make real difficult decisions um you know we also repress the opposition by arresting isis members like you have to remember they are political opposition in the region just as you know nazi soldiers and nazi sympathizers and collaborators were european opposition parties as the allies and you know as the as the allies liberated europe that mm -hmm. they arrested and often executed these people like the at least you know they don't do that and and uh, sometimes a more soft approach to these kind of things could get your people killed and and you have to be careful about that mm -hmm. that's that's what i would say about that yeah i think that was really well said um what you were saying about people need to realize that this is a real life revolution that's happening right now and and i think to expect people in that situation in such a volatile situation to be ideologically pure in every single way um or just pure in action in every single way uh is just is really unrealistic i mean not to excuse any you know any uh 
bad things that are going on. No, <laughs> I, mildly, but but yeah, I, I feel I should point out at this this point as well that the the YPG is one of the few militias in the area, one of the few armies, um, and and the 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 FNS as a whole, I guess, that punishes people who commit you know war crimes and so on within their own side like people get arrested for executing prisoners for looting houses for for driving people out of their homes when there's no good reason um and i know good reason for driving people out of their homes also doesn't sound good but there are like real times when you have to be like no, you need to leave because this area is about to get like really badly bombarded and you're going to die. So you have to leave um, kind of thing. But but there's also, you know, guys who it's a civil war and everyone knows what happens in that kind of thing. And there are some really terrible people who get involved in that kind of thing and want to, you know, it's a classic thing that a neighbor who's coveted their... Um, sorry, a person who's coveted their neighbor's garden, you know, when the civil war breaks out, they find some excuse of like, well, he's a Shia or whatever. So they go in, they kill them and they take their land or whatever. That kind of thing would be very, very seriously punished uh, by the YPG, whereas it isn't by any of the other factions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Right. Yeah, I mean, like in all of their, as far as I know, in in all of their kind of actions and dealings, they seem to be at least more conscious or or more conscious and trying to make sure that what they're doing aligns with their overall political principle of of democratic confederalism yeah and also just kind of being decent (laughs) yeah (laughs) right um so you mentioned isis uh and you know a a bit about these quote-unquote opposition parties um so could you explain who are the main threats to Kurdish self-determination uh which groups are attacking them and why and what are their interests um well the the threat of isis is basically gone now i mean they could by some miracle come back but it's unlikely at this point um turkey is kind of the main turkey's the main one i mean the states in the area that control what is you know traditionally kurdistan or whatever so turkey iraq syria and iran are all for their own reasons opposed to kurdish self-determination autonomy or independence any one of of those sort of thing um turkey is the most powerful the most dedicated to this kind of thing, has the largest Kurdish population and is the one that is attacking the FNS right now. Um, you know, they they have the second largest army in NATO, they have Western support, they have all this kind of stuff um, and they've been practised at it for a long time, having fought, you know, having fought the PKK for the last 40 years. Yeah, so they're essentially... Turkey is the biggest problem. Um, the others maybe can be dealt with more. I think, you know, like, for example, Assad might decide to come to terms with uh, with the YPG or whatever and allow them some autonomy because the war's been so long and costly that, like, you know, they, they may just decide that negotiating with a faction that's willing to negotiate is more worthwhile than just levelling 
like what's left of the country sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Iraqis, you know, they have some problem with the, their Kurdish population there, but they, you know, they, they still have a Kurdistan regional government and all that kind of thing. Um, I le- I know less about Iran, to be quite honest. I know that, that um, Kurds and especially Kurdish women were very heavily involved in... Um, in the recent protests and stuff and, and a lot of the stuff about uh, rebelling against the um, requirement to wear hijab and all that kind of stuff. But, and then there are kind of Kurdish rebel groups uh, like uh, PJAK, um, which is essentially the PKK in Iran who exist there, but they're, they're not as, you know, they're not as strong or as influential as either say the PKK or the YPG is in their particular areas. Mm-hmm. So what is Turkey's interest? Like, is it just malice or are they trying to annex this area or? It's a bit of a lot of things because it originated in nationalism. One of the reasons why the the Kurdish freedom movement as it is, isn't strictly nationalist is because they look at the examples of Turkey and Israel, among others, and point out how the establishment of a state of a nation state for an ethnicity for an identity pretty much necessitates repressing expelling and mistreating anyone who doesn't fit that mold so Mm -hmm. this is what nationalist ideology does you know so when turkey the ottoman empire had a system where the different nations were allows autonomy and so on and so forth within within the empire but when that changed to a modern unitary nation state called turkey for turks sort of thing um that resulted in the genocide of the armenians with um help from kurds as it happens and they're they're very uh they they feel it's very important to point that out um you know that that all sorts of people can be suckered into this um you know they're not just like some kind of victim ethnicity sort of thing and so yeah so turkey in in that sense is like like the kind of deep state of turkey and so on are interested in it for that reason um for creating this 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 nation state um for erdogan and his kind of his type they're slightly neo-ottomanist like they believe not just in the turkish nation state but that that should um establish dominance within the uh muslim world that um you know they should try and reclaim areas that were previously controlled by the ottoman empire or by turks um which includes you know those areas of syria and iraq and so on and so forth they also want to prevent the establishment of of a base uh, for PKK operations within Turkey in neighboring countries. And I believe there's a, a decent amount of natural resources in the Turkish part of Kurdistan as well, which, you know, and there's loads of oil, productive farmland, and so on and so forth in northern Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a bunch of different ideological and geopolitical kind of realist interests in the region. So, so it basically results in a cross a massive cross-section of the turkish governing part of society having an interest in suppressing kurdish rebellions wherever they happen and expanding turkish control and influence in the middle east hmm. okay thank you for that i i always wondered why like why is your turkey care so much about this um so 
could you give some detail about the attacks on Kobani and is it Afrin or Afrin? Afrin, yeah, or Afrin, Afrin I Afrin? think it is. Yeah. Um, and explain their importance. Um, so when it comes to Kobani, um, do you mean the the battle with ISIS or? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, so essentially, um, when was it? 2014, 2015? Oh, I've forgotten now. Um, <laughs> but when, basically, when ISIS was on the up, um, they kind of seemed uh, unstoppable. Uh, yeah, so it's 2014, September 2014, this is happening. Uh, ISIS was on the rise. They kind of seemed unstoppable. They just won victory after victory after victory. They decided in um i think august of 2014 to invade then the ypg controlled areas for for a number of reasons you know because they see them as the atheist pkk even though there's a variety of people of different religions uh, there and everything so they invaded they invaded what were at the time essentially just the kurdish areas of syria controlled by the ypg um and they pushed up quite far to the city of Kobani, which is in the center of the northern border of Syria, so the border with um, Iraq and, uh, not Iraq, sorry, Syria and Turkey. And the when they got to the city, the YPG decided that this far and no further was kind of going to be their approach, that they would fight the hardest they could um, to repel um, ISIS from the city, and they gave the best resistance to ISIS that anyone had seen at this point. You know, Mosul had mm-hmm. fallen basically without a fight. The ISIS had taken cities like Fallujah and so on, and were just, you know, progressing and progressing and progressing. And the people they faced would often just be too scared and run away. Um, but the, the kind of approach of the YPG was, these are fascists. We have to stop them this will be the Stalingrad of our conflict sort of thing. Um, and with like ridiculously outnumbered, you know, it, it varies that at some point there was like a couple of hundred YPG members in the city and like 7,000 uh, ISIS attacking them and stuff. Wow. Um, and uh, you know, I think those numbers grew as people like came across from the the border from Turkey and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there was, you know, it varies and it's hard to establish direct numbers, but they were ridiculously outnumbered. ISIS had tanks and artillery and all this kind of stuff. And the YPG essentially had themselves some grenades and their AKs, maybe a couple of rocket launchers and this kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. There was loads of ridiculous heroics, you know, like Aaron Merkan, who blew herself up in the middle of a ISIS convoy um, as they were about to overrun her squad's position. So she was a squad leader. She told her squad to retreat and just like ran into their um, armored personnel carriers and everything blew them up and destroyed quite a few um, of those. All, all this kind of thing. People just, they, they were just holding on for dear life. And they managed to, they were losing the city slowly, but they were holding ISIS back and managing to reclaim areas of the city or reclaim strategic hills. Uh, that There's like three large hills around the city that give a good um, view of it and all that kind of thing. They managed to lose them and recapture them and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, this, this was a big thing because it, it 
demonstrated to people that ISIS could be fought and they maybe even could be stopped. And then when the Americans decided to step in and started um, dropping airstrikes on the ISIS tanks and their artillery and everything, that tipped the the tide of battle in favor of the YPG and it was over at that point, basically. Mm -hmm. They drove ISIS back and basically haven't stopped since then. Um, so it was the turning point in the war against ISIS. Before that, ISIS, you know, was essentially undefeated. And after that, it was the kind of, if it bleeds, we can kill it sort of moment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So so that's why Kobani is really important and kind of symbolic, especially to, to um, Kurds and that kind of thing. Um, Afrin itself was uh, a canton, so so kind of the DFNS is made up of three cantons of Kobani, um, Jazeera in the east, and uh, Afrin in the west. And Afrin um, has been isolated; they haven't been able to, you know, um, they haven't been able to liberate the areas between them in Mambij and them in Afrin. Um, and so, and the Americans are basically only giving support and air cover um, east of the Euphrates, uh, whereas Afrin is west. So the Turks, seeing you know the success of uh, the YPG, especially after they took Raqqa, the supposed capital of ISIS, the Turks decided, okay, we've got to do something about this now, and we've got to essentially weaken the YPG and strengthen the kind of jihadist rebel factions that that uh, turkey supports in the region um and kind of strengthen their hand in the negotiations that are going to come um or, or that are in progress at the moment so yeah they invaded afrin which which had managed even though they hadn't managed to reach their comrades in the east they had managed to essentially keep out all other factions you know they'd been attacked by loads of different people and they'd managed to keep everyone out. They'd taken in um, something like 150,000 refugees, which is doubling the population of the, the canton. Mm -hmm. um, all this kind of thing. So it was kind of a more peaceful area. And now all those people have been made refugees again. Um, as the Turks invaded, the, the YPG put up a really good fight uh, at first, but the superior numbers and, again, the superior equipment of of the Turkish army, the Turkish air force, and all that kind of stuff, and the the jihadist allies, um, they were able to eventually overrun Afrin. And and towards the end, like before before the actual city of Afrin, I thought it was going to be a horrendous, bloody battle, and Afrin would end up leveled. But as it as it came to it, the YPG pulled out of the city because. Um, the essentially human cost would have been far too high. So they, they switched from fighting as they were in a very conventional style to now fighting a sort of guerrilla war um, in, in the region. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, that's a big important thing because, you know, it's the Turks invading Syria and repressing the Kurds again and replacing the feminist democratic model with um, an Islamist extremely patriarchal and brutal kind of situation that we have now you know the governing mm. council of afrin as it stands under the turks is all men um mm. there have been women going missing there have been yazidis uh forced to convert to islam or executed and all this kind of thing and mm. horrendous crimes against people that i won't even go into um mm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really horrific. And I mean, I guess it just kind of, as you said, the threat of ISIS is diminishing and now the threat of Turkey is, is really real. Yeah. And, and Turkey had been helping ISIS for ages and shooting at shooting at the YPG over the border and stuff like that. They um, they sent like police into into Kobani once because like just over the border because they were building like a border wall and people were protesting against it and all that kind of thing. A few of my friends got tear gassed in that. Um, mm. Wow. And that was before Afrin. So they've been interfering all the time. They've been allowing ISIS to cross the border and attack the YPG from behind. Most of the ISIS fighters come through Turkey and and for a while they were sort of collaborating um, and so on. Mm. Okay. Um, So you just mentioned that some of your um, friends were tear gas. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your time in the YPG. Uh, what motivated you to join their struggle and to fight with them? And what were you involved with mainly? Um, so I joined essentially because I felt, you know, it was um, an unusual revolutionary thing when you know, especially when you consider the radically feminist aspects of it, all that kind of thing. I had a lot of sympathies for for their cause, and I felt it is kind of two things. On the one hand, I felt there was a lot that we could learn from them that I wanted to see for myself if what I was hearing about it was true, and um, that I felt, you know, it was in such a desperate situation that if I claim how could i claim to support it without actually doing anything to support it you know what i mean and of course you know i always mentioned the influence of the volunteers in the spanish civil war many of whom were from wales and, and so on and so forth uh, mm-hmm. so i kind of felt inspired by their example mm-hmm. um and you know proper spirit of internationalist uh, solidarity mm-hmm. um while i was there i spent I spent six months there. I was in various areas of the country. I was generally in, I was in two different uh, units while I was there. Um, And most of the time I was, I was essentially a translator for other foreign volunteers that were with me because I've, you know, I grew up essentially bilingual and pretty good at picking up languages and stuff like that. Although they were, my Kurdish pronunciation is a bit off these days, but um, uh, yeah, that's that's essentially it. I was, you know, I was involved in some fighting against ISIS from time to time when they came to attack us. Mm-hmm. Um, got bombed by the Turkish Air Force, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, that's it. It involves a lot of sitting around drinking chai and smoking cigarettes today. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I like what you what you said there about you know being inspired um, by the Spanish Civil War, but also thinking about you know what what can we learn from them, and and also wanting to see what is it actually like on the ground because I, I agree. I mean, we hear so much in the West, kind of secondhand, but it's hard to know exactly how things are operating. So, yeah, I think that's really remarkable that you went over. So in terms of America's help, I know you mentioned that they were um, providing or they were bombing um, ISIS, uh, Kobani, et cetera. 
there's been a real divide on the left in terms of how people feel about the YPG forming strategic alliances with the US and also with the Assad regime in Russia. So could you briefly explain the US and Russian motivations for cooperating with or offering tactical support to the YPG? And what do you think the implications of this are? Well, as a kind of third party in the conflict, the, well, I say third party, it's like fourth or fifth party, but um, the essentially throughout the whole course of the war, there have been times when each faction has kind of had an implicit understanding with each of the others for a limited kind of tactical reason. Um, so, for example, the YPG and the Assad regime kind of cooperating or not attacking each other more accurately um, when ISIS or the rebels are attacking them and vice versa, you know, because um, there are obviously a lot of rebel factions within the SDF who are with the YPG and everything. They have been opposed to Assad and they have fought him. And they're they're ideologically different. They're ideologically con conflicting. But you know, just all-out war with everyone all the time will just lead to you losing and them uniting against you. Uh, so you know, every like I said, every faction's had to balance all that very carefully. Um, in terms of the superpowers and the foreign powers, because there's it's more than just US and Russia, you know, Iran are involved, uh, Turkey, of course, is involved, the Saudis, the Jordanians, all that kind of thing. Basically, everyone, you know, Europeans as well, every, everyone with an interest in the region in some way has a hand in the conflict. But yeah, to keep it simple, with Russia, you know, it's the same thing. They they haven't given that much help to the YPG, that much help and support. And when it came down to it, Afrin was in the Russian sphere of influence, so to speak, and they left left it to the Turks to, you know, make an agreement with them over Ghouta or whatever. Like again, it, all all this trading and politics going on. Um with the US, it's it's again a similar thing of where you know, the, the YPG aren't US pets, you know, they're not a US creation, like say the Contras in Nicaragua or something. Mm -hmm. um, they entered into a, a kind of limited tactical alliance because their interests aligned during the fight against ISIS. And, and we can see this from, from how the US also, which is, you know, it's not only in NATO, but it's essentially the leading member because you know, the US is the hegemonic power in the world at the moment. Mm -hmm. For how much longer is another question, that's something different. Uh, and and so they could have opposed Turkey more strongly. They could have, you know, done more about it, but they didn't. Um, and, and similar with Britain and stuff, they're more interested in cozying up to Turkey for, um, for trade reasons. The US is more interested in them because uh, because they control the Bosphorus, so they're strategically important when it comes to Russia and all this kind of stuff. In terms of how leftists criticize it, if they're consistent, then they will also criticize the Nazi Soviet pact, which was used to essentially 
by by time by having a non-aggression pact not an alliance um with with the nazis and um, which of course the nazis broke because you can't trust fascists <laughs> um and they accepted military aid and alliance with um with the major imperialist powers of the world at that time to to fight the um to fight the fascists um because they recognized that the fascists were the existential threat at that point that 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 you know you can say what you like about imperialists and capitalists and they can turn into fascists in with relative ease but um, the the out and out violent aggressive fascists are the biggest threat, and and I, that is what ISIS represents in this in this context. You know, um, so so if 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 they're consistent and they they criticise those things with the full awareness of exactly what they are and what that involves, then you know I'll still disagree with them and I'll still pray to God that they never have to make any strategic decisions in their life. But <laughs> I'll, I'll have a bit more respect for that. Um, for mm-hmm. people who just criticize the YPG because, you know, America's the great Satan and you have to oppose absolutely everything they do all the time, even when they, like, for once in their lives, actually do the right thing, you know, in a kind of stopped clock sort of way, then I just, I just think it's stupid. Like, it, it's, again, the kind of thing of not recognizing the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. That, like I said before about Kabani. The YPG were on the verge of getting overrun. Um, women were going to be sold into slavery. People who were, you know, gay or atheists or agnostics or just not the right kind of Muslims were going to be executed. The population was going to be brutalized. Um, and, you know, the revolution was going to be destroyed. When the Americans joined, that completely changed. And it did save the revolutionary project. Now, they may come to conflict in the future. It's unlikely because, you know, unlike an organization like ISIS, the YPG doesn't have, you know, globe-spanning ambitions or whatever. But, like, on an ideological level, they are not friends. And and they will openly say this. And the members of the YPG will openly say this. It's like, yeah, they're America, but, you know is kind of like Stalin said about the Pope, you know, how many tank divisions has he got, you know, all these various uh, ideologic, supposedly ideologically pure anti-imperialist leftists, uh, how big an air force have they got? Mm-hmm. How many ISIS tanks can they destroy? Mm-hmm. How many uh, artillery positions can they, can they destroy? None. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a war and you have to make real decisions that, that, that affect people's real lives that that make the difference between people dying in their thousands or in their hundreds mm-hmm. you know uh, that's the reality of the situation and if someone has a better alternative that doesn't result in thousands of people getting massacred the ypg being destroyed and the whole re- revolutionary project along with it then you know i'm open to hear it and you can take a time machine and go back and do it that way mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but you know in the in the in the real world, that was what they had to do because that's the reality of war. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always wonder when people criticize them for accepting help. I mean, I understand feeling cautious about that or being like, you know, the U.S. is not doing this to be benevolent or to actually help the revolution. Of course not. No. But I always wonder, you know, like the Kurdish forces have such limited resources, so 
if they weren't going to get help from the U.S., then where were they going to get the help? Where were they going? Like, like exactly what you said. What is the alternative? Like, where would they be getting this support because they need it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. They're they're literally surrounded by enemies. Literally, mm. you got Turkey to the north. At the time, they had ISIS all around them, coming from every angle. You have to the east of them the the you know semi-hostile KDP, you know, Iran's not going to help them. Uh, Iraq's not really going to help them. Um, there, there was no one else. Russia's not going to help. China's not going to help. And, you know, there is no, there is no socialist superpower mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, for all the problems of the USSR, that is essentially what it was. And they were able to give real material support to real revolutions around the world. And they did it rather successfully in a lot of cases. Um, that does not exist anymore. The Russia that exists today is an imperialist capitalist force where the ruling class made their money off looting the USSR and looting the collective property of the Russian uh, people and the the other peoples that were within the USSR that mm. is the reality of the people who who you know who who are involved in the world at the moment and china china's flexing its muscles more you can argue how marxist they are these days and that days and whatever mm. they do not occupy the same space that the USSR did mm-hmm. um and and so you know that <laughs> again yeah that is the reality of the situation that's Mm-hmm. That that's how it is. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you were privy to you know speaking with people in in the YPG, and um, as far as you heard, obviously nobody was thinking about an alliance with the U.S. being anything more than a strategic, you know, one or two time thing or whatever yeah. is needed. Yeah. No, th- th- this is something that kind of annoys me about it as well. Is that it's quite patronizing, mm-hmm. like it's that kind of like. It's the sort of thing of like, well, people in the Middle East, foreign people can't make political rationalist kind of decisions. They can't, they're, they're naive kind of thing. It's, it's like suggesting that they're naive, that this socialist mm-hmm. revolutionary group doesn't know what America is. Mm-hmm. Like they're well aware of it. Um, and they are not naive. And a lot of the people, you know, there's a lot of stupidity in the YPG. And I say that in the greatest, with the greatest kindness, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it is a militia and all that kind of stuff and all the problems that come with that. But a lot of the people who, who are involved in it and who, who are commanders and stuff like that are very, very smart people. And they have made some very good political decisions in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And this is one of it. They are aware of what they're doing. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot better than a Western leftist, including myself. You know, they <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they know a lot better, you know, than someone in an armchair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there have been similar criticisms, which you kind of uh, talked about a bit about the Assad regime. Um, that apparently they're fighting side by side with Assad, which is more than at least having this mutual understanding. What would you say to that? And do you think it's problematic given what Assad is doing to Syrian civilians outside of Rojava? Um, this is an interesting thing is that I find criticism because the, the left is such as it is, 
is divided massively on this. So you get people who are who are super supportive of Assad and see the whole FSA thing as essentially, you know, Western creation, like the Contras, to destabilize the region and serve the interests of this, that, and the other. Then you get people who are uh, left-wing, but pro-FSA, super anti-Assad, um, all this kind of thing. And, you know, there is no doubt that the, the Assad government has you know, committed crimes against his people and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, that goes beyond just fighting the rebellion. And mm-hmm. But the reality is, you know, whichever... I, I mean, I have started to believe that the revolution in terms of the FSA now, like, if, if you asked me, um, you know, seven years ago when it started or whatever, I would have given you a different answer. But today... I do see Assad uh, just for all, all, because it's not just, you know, Bashar, like going down to each torture chamber and like ripping people's fingernails off or, or, or firing the buttons on each bomber. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an entire structure. And, and in some ways, Bashar is one of the, um, one of the more sane members of the Assad family and, and one of the, the more reasonable members of the, the government. Um, you know, it's the people who run like the Air Force intelligence and stuff who are really brutal. Um, but yeah, I essentially see him as, as a lesser evil these days because the what is left of the revolution, essentially, um, like basically everyone who was somewhat decent defected to the SDF some time ago or died. The 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 majority of of what's left with the FSA, especially with the Turkish intervention now, are the most brutal, horrendous Islamist gangs that no leftist with any ounce of sanity should be supporting, even on a tactical level, like even on a you know, well they're opposing someone who I don't like and da 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 da. No, they are even more the problem than. Assad for for you know Assad has Assad's faction has killed the most civilians in the conflict just out of pure ability because the others don't have an air force they don't have the level of you know high explosive weapons artillery and so forth and if you're fighting a rebellion if you're fighting a war like in modern war for you know since since world war 2 i believe it's something like 80 90 percent of all casualties in war have been civilians because it's massive high explosives fighting over populated areas and it kills loads of people and if you have the most of those weapons you're going to kill the most civilians it's not even about you know intent um now i in, a, in an ideal world i would rather a democratic confederalist system in the whole place and and you know no torture no um, brutal repressions and executions and all that kind of thing. That is what I would like. But in the reality, after seven years of civil war, uh, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, to be honest. I'll just answer simply and say that the YPG doesn't, it's not allied with Assad, that they have advanced in the same place uh, at times. But like the rebels fucking gassed, oh, pardon me, the rebels gassed a, um, uh, the Kurdish neighborhood in Aleppo. You know, they've done some really horrible things as well. And in those situations, you can't really blame the YPG forces there for wanting to fight the rebels, being willing to, and being willing to not fight on two fronts at once to do it. 
um, you know, to exploit the ebbs and flows of the war. But mm. like I said, the Assad regime and the YPG have fought rhetorically. They speak against each other all the time. Mm. Um, recently, there's been conflict between the Americans, uh, Russians, the Assad regime and the YPG all fighting at the same time. You know, it was when the, the Americans bombed what they call Russian mercenaries, but what are probably Russian special forces or something, or, they, mm -hmm. you know, or uh, at least Kremlin connected. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's essentially another, just to finish this off, because uh, I'm, I'm aware that I can ramble a bit and, and <laughs> go on for quite a while, but essentially what, what a lot of these criticisms and problems come down to is people do not understand how war works people react to news in a certain way and da 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 so they take one example of a thing happening and extrapolate from it mm -hmm. um and make assumptions about it and da 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 in the same way that people will look at the nazi soviet pact and say oh that's an alliance even mm -hmm. though the actual terms of it you can see it's not an alliance it's a non-aggression pact it's a it's a understanding and that that's even more official than anything that's happened in the Syrian civil war here. You know, it's, it's one shouldn't get ahead of oneself and say, you know, oh, well, there's this individual instance of this, so it must mean this, this, and this, and this, which, mm -hmm. you know, isn't actually stated by, or isn't actually demonstrated by what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. They treated it as if this this thing invalidates this entire project, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Riyadh. I mean, it's completely understandable, given that Assad has killed so many more civilians. You know, it's understandable if, for some Syrians, their first priority would be Assad, and um, right, of um, course, and they would be upset with the YPG having some kind of you know agreement. But I think again, as you said. Um, you can't fight a war on all fronts, right? And so. Yeah. Uh, they just don't, they don't have the capacity to be doing that. And so I, yeah, I mean, I think if they want any hope of self-determination at all, they have to work with what they have at the moment. And what they have at the moment is the re Assad regime in power. Yeah. And if they, if they were, if they were able to remove Assad and, you know, install a, a democratic confederalist system over the whole country, they would do that. Uh, they would do it tomorrow if they could, um, mm -hmm. but like you said, they can't. This is what they have now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I have one final question, and it's again responding to a uh, uh, criticism. So, how would you respond to the criticism of Western leftists who go abroad to fight as being civilizing in a way? or that if they want to fight for some kind of anarchist utopia, then they should stay at home and do it there? Well, there's, there's a bunch of different responses to this um, kind of thing. If, if anyone who holds that kind of opinion is still listening, um, <laughs> that I, I, I don't know, and, and I might risk driving them off now by saying this, but that is essentially an anti-left-wing position. That is not it's not a left-wing position to say that you cannot be an internationalist um you cannot be um an anti-racist you cannot you know you cannot hold any or all of these positions and then kind of criticize internationalist cooperation um mm -hmm. <laughs> but like i i do get 
I do get where people are coming from on this. That that you know, with you know, naming no names and not not putting anything on it, but some of the volunteers that can go over, you know, a lot of them aren't leftists and don't do it mm. for that reason. Mm. And and sometimes do have kind of neo-colonialist attitudes towards the locals that perhaps they picked up when they were there as part of their national army or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was there, I served in a Kurdish unit under Kurdish commanders. Or actually, that's that's not quite accurate. It was, again, a multi-ethnic Kurdish, Arab and, and others kind of unit. But um, so I'll rephrase it. I served with locals in a local command structure under locals that I had to live with and treat as comrades um, that we fought side by side. We lost friends side by side. I didn't go there to tell them how to live their lives. I went there to, like I said earlier, to, to learn from them in many ways that, that, that mm -hmm. I felt that there were things they were, they were doing in their struggle that I could bring home and, uh, and apply to, uh, to struggles over here not in the sense of like how to operate a Kalashnikov, um, but like, like other things involving how the life goes, how, how the democratic confederalist system is, is set up and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't go there as a kind of, um, I don't know, like you, you get some of the very kind of problematic volunteers in Africa who go and basically teach the poor little Africans to like wash themselves or whatever mm -hmm. and then actually find out that you know they're people who kind of know what they're doing and mm -hmm. you shouldn't really patronize them like that is it's a very kind of different thing the mm -hmm. the the relations between us were very different to that kind of thing and and the the locals themselves are quite self-assured in terms of their identity and they're, they're more likely to to view us as foreigners as being uh childish in a way as as, as like ignorant um as, as as like we need to be shown how to do things because it's that classic thing of of when you have foreigners coming in who can't speak a language um, people can often think of them as quite stupid. We see this in in our own communities with, with people, and they they haven't had the the same like anti-racist campaigns and so on and so forth to to kind of change behaviours like that and 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 so so on and so forth. And again, that would be something that comes out of them, um, not something that could ever be imposed from outside. Mm. Um, yeah, you know. So so it's is. That's kind of based on a fundamental misunderstanding of exactly how it works, exactly the relations between people and, and so on and so forth. Um, also, they must, of course, think of uh, of Che Guevara as a terrible um, white saviour, uh, <laughs> like middle class doctor goes on a gap year to the jungles of Guatemala or whatever. Like, God, why didn't he stay home and da 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 da? <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, um, uh -huh. there's also one more thing to on this, which is that actually um, most of us do. Those of us who are leftists and, and are involved in the, um, uh, who, who go to join the YPG, we're um, workers ourselves involved in political stuff, uh, trade union organizers, um, uh, activists and campaigners of all kinds of stuff like um, Anna Campbell who who was a, a British woman who died in Afrin she mm -hmm. was 
um, a very popular kind of anarchist campaigner back at home, and she struggled for women's rights for for the you know democratic freedoms against um you know kind of police and the state and private property and all that kind of stuff and and mm-hmm. um, um for palestinian freedom for you know quite a lot of other issues that are de- near and dear to leftists and also as part of that she did her what i see as her leftist duty in not just being selfish with those kind of things not just not not sticking to national borders established by and for imperialists for the the power of the powerful not just sticking to that isolating themselves but actually engaging in you know the workers of the world actually uniting and actually fighting to lose their chains like that's actually what's happening here and 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 saying those kind of things oh well why don't you just stay at home like people Mm-hmm. People don't understand how the two are linked, how how you can learn things from them, how it's part of it's it's part of leftist struggle. That the, the more free other people are, the the more free we are likely to be, and all that kind of stuff. And it is disrespecting people like Anna, who fought really, really hard for what they believed in at home, fought mm-hmm. really, really hard for justice at home, and fought fought for it um, alongside others, and fucking died for it. Mm-hmm. And and all these people who who want to criticise, you know, do half as much as someone like Anna Campbell, do half as much as someone like Michael Israel, and then we can talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that. I'm I'm done on that one. Really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think those are really good points. I mean, it's not an either or. And as you said, with Anna, especially, she did so much at home. So. It's like, yeah, I have been staying home. <laughs> I have been staying home and doing it. And now I'm I'm coming here to support as well. And yeah, I think the point about, you know, learning things from different from different people and different systems is also really important because you know, on the left, we always talk about, okay, well, what's the system of the future? We need a blueprint, like, what's the alternative, right? And it's like, these are things we have to build together. And we have to take cues from one another and see what's working and see what's not working, etc. And yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think in somewhere like, you know, Britain or Canada, um, it's it's harder to think about those alternatives, because we don't really have the space to be building anarchist utopias you know what i mean um, yeah it's just a totally different situation yeah well that, that's actually just another thing quite quickly um is is there is no like that they're, they're in the middle of a revolution that's actually happening now that needs yes. support that needs you know um and you, you know i've been better positioned to talk to other people about it and and spread the message of what they're doing and all that kind of thing because i've actually been there and i've actually seen what they're doing and i can you know, speak with a degree of authority on it, you know, like mm-hmm. my knowledge is of course limited because I was one person in a massive area and massive organization and all that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can, I can do that now. And, and without this, you know, those things would be a lot more limited and we, we wouldn't necessarily, like you say, know about what's working, about what's not. And, and, and there isn't a, a revolution happening in Britain. And you know, maybe right now there shouldn't be. Mm. Maybe there should. That's that's for other people to decide. But the fact is, there isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like you say, we've got to build things up bit by bit. Get involved in different campaigns, different, 
you know, where, where there are problems, say, with, I don't know, housing or with, um, you know, in, in Ireland, they, re uh, they repealed restrictions on abortion recently and all that kind of things. And these, mm -hmm. these things can all help contribute to the society that we want to build. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it's, if you're just sitting around waiting for the revolutionary moment, it's never going to come. You are mm -hmm. just exactly the same as a Christian sitting around waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Like he he ain't coming, man. You you, you have to go out there, and 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 you know. I guess if you're a Christian, behave in the way Jesus would have wanted you to. If you're if you're a socialist, if you if you have pretensions of being a revolutionary or someone who wants to see change in society, it's mm. incredibly corny. But you do, to some degree, have to help be that change that you want to see. Like that that it's mm. it's so trite because it's obvious and true and that's why everyone quotes that bloody gandhi quote all the time like it is mm -hmm. true mm -hmm. um yeah yeah and we're not going to get anywhere otherwise yeah no absolutely i think that's a really great point and i think that's probably a good place to leave it unless you have any final thoughts to add um no there, there's nothing there's nothing in particular that i can I can really think of just uh, just to kind of encourage everyone to see past the the problems of you know American involvement and the the shades of gray that exist in any real life organization you know the YPG the the PYD all that kind of stuff they're not pure white they're not purely innocent but they they are better than a lot of the alternatives step by step you know Mm -hmm. like like we said we can build something better um if we support these kind of things if we if we help with these kind of things and if we try to apply some of the things which people do better to our own societies and everything and eventually communism will win i hope <laughs> <laughs> yes i hope i hope well that was very well said so thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about all of this today i really appreciate it uh no problem oh sorry can i just say one one more thing very quickly <laughs> yes, that i've yes. just thought of also forget about all the politics and everything if you have the opportunity to help refugees and 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 syrians palestinians and other people even ukrainians and so on who are who are fleeing the conflict no matter what side they were on if you can do that you really should because fundamentally it's more about humanity than anything else and that, yeah. that's it. absolutely that's a really good point that's something that western leftists should be really focusing a lot more attention on at home is opening the borders so so thank you for that and thanks thanks again for coming on the show oh, it's a pleasure Thanks, Fabi.